Hey there, dog people of the internet. It's Sarah Stremming, the Cog Dog Coach, and this is Cog Dog Radio. Join me as I cover behavior concepts, discuss training ideas, interview experts, and explore my cases, all regarding the dogs we live and play with. Let's go. A really common question that folks will ask me is what value of food should I use for any given task? So I might be talking about, you know, teaching a puppy to get up on a piece of equipment for the first time and people will say, what value of food? Or I might be talking about loose leash walking and people will say, well, what value of food? Sometimes I will have people ask me, hey, what are your favorite really high value foods because my dog doesn't like food in you know xyz circumstance and i love to flip this question on its head and help everybody to think a little bit differently about the quote-unquote value of the reinforcement that they're using the short answer is always that you want to use the correct ratio of value. Essentially meaning, if the task is hard, then the payment should be great. So for instance, think about the amount of money you might pay for a piece of artwork that is made by a really talented artist. They maybe went to art school, they produce the exact type of art that you're interested in and you would like an original, you would you don't want a print. You'd also like it framed and made beautiful to put on your wall. You're gonna pay more for that than you're going to pay for a photocopy of an original piece of art. And you're going to pay more for that than you would pay for you know, a scribbled drawing that you came up with on a napkin in a restaurant. In that sense, I want to be thinking, how much effort does my dog need to exert to do the thing I'm asking her to do? And how can I pay her appropriately for that effort? What I find is that there are kind of two camps of people that are using food to train. There's people who are extremely stingy. They're using like little bits of dry kibble or just little microscopic shreds of something a little tasty and they're giving the dog one little piece between their pinched fingers for every rep that the dog gives or there are people who brought you know 600 different options and they continue to up the ante for the dog and they are offering fluffy a platter of you know roasted chicken steak they picked up a cheeseburger on their way to training They've got cheese stuffed hot dogs and their dog is saying no to each one. The reality is finding yourself somewhere between these two is going to be most effective for you. How do you know if you're being stingy is you look at the behavior. Is the behavior happening readily for you with good amounts of enthusiasm? Because if so, you're probably not being stingy. You're probably doing just fine. Is the behavior happening without extraneous kind of frustration types of behaviors? So is the behavior happening without barking, without fussing around first, without, you know, giving a quick spin or a quick jump at you first? If the behavior is happening cleanly like that, without those extras, 
you're probably not being stingy. Now, if I'm just in my garage doing fitness behaviors with my dogs, I'm probably using whatever I've got on hand. That's going to be kibble a lot of the time. It's going to be freeze-dried raw. It's going to be, you know, any number of things that I just have all the time. I'm feeding them a lot. So the effort to reward ratio is about right. I'm not asking them for 10 different fitness behaviors for one piece of kibble. It's probably a one-to-one ratio, and that's probably about right for my dogs. But when I'm training Rhea weave pulls, which she's telling me is the hardest thing she's ever learned, I'm very careful to provide million-dollar reinforcers. In fact, if I'm on my way to the field and I realize that all I've got is the status quo reinforcers, I'm making a stop to get her something better. The way that I deliver that better food is also really important. I'd like some spikes of energy from her in her reinforcement process, and she likes to have spikes of energy too. And so I will stuff a food toy with this million dollar reinforcer, and I'll throw it for her as payment for a lot of her agility behaviors, but right now, specifically weave pulse. When I say million dollar reinforcer, I'm telling you, if we're meeting in the morning, it's a sausage McMuffin from McDonald's. Specifically the sausage and the cheese, because that's her favorite part. If it's in the afternoon, it's probably chicken nuggets, which are a big winner with Rhea as well. And if I have planned ahead, it's usually rotisserie chicken or steak. And that's for weave pulls. And I am not giving her that million dollar reinforcer for those easier behaviors. And... Here's the thing. Sometimes I might because she's still giving me a lot of effort. Agility is not easy for her. But I might do a whole sequence and then give her the million dollar reinforcer versus one rep of weave pulls gets that million dollars. So my ratio still matches even though I'm using that really high value reinforcer. For Felix, a lot of the work is really desirable in and of itself. And so if I layer extremely valuable reinforcement on top of extremely valuable work, I actually might put him in a mindset that's not helpful for me. There are a few behaviors for which I use a hierarchy of reinforcers to reinforce different layers of the behavior. Recalls are the most common example for me here. I use a kind of low rung reinforcer for check-ins, I use a good middle rung reinforcer for easy recalls, and I have a million dollar reinforcer that I use for hard recalls. It's summertime right now in the Northwest, and there's going to be a lot of people out on the trails, and there's going to be a lot of people riding horses. A recall away from horseback riders is like weave poles for Rhea. It is the hardest thing that I ask her for. It gets a million dollars and it gets a million dollars every time and that's a promise. Using a hierarchy means that you recognize where the effort is really required from your dog. In the beginning, check-ins were paid with steak for Rhea because I didn't have them. She's a Nordic Spitz. She does care about me, but not in the same way that the Border Collies do. And making sure that her radius was tight and she did not develop hunting behaviors or running away to visit everybody behaviors required that shaping that tight radius used super high value reinforcement. Now today, I just use plain kibble for 
her check-ins, but I'd still pay for all of her check-ins. Whereas with my border collies, I don't because they'll simply walk next to me the entire walk if I do. Now, famously, and the reason that these questions sometimes come up is my dogs do work for basically anything. I make sure that I have million dollar payment for things that I think are owed million dollar payment. But if I feel like my dog will flip me off and, and not do the thing, if I don't show them that money up front, I have done something else wrong. And that's what comes down to, I want the dog to trust scenarios with me that involve food. I want my dogs to trust that me and food is a winning combination for them. I want them to trust that me and training is a winning combination for them. My dogs would do pretty much anything for whatever food I had because they value the training itself. But until you are there, until the dog does value the training itself, you're going to need to convince them by making sure that you are delivering high value reinforcement for even easy stuff because you don't have the buy-in yet. And all of this also relates to making sure that we are balancing using the fat paycheck that is required to get consistent behavior with maybe inadvertently coercing the dog because we're using reinforcement that they cannot refuse. Coercion inherently comes with yuckiness, yucky feelings attached, the stuff that we don't like. Whereas a big fat paycheck for behavior that is just put on the table for the dog to offer does not come with those feelings. And that's actually the difference. The outcomes are the difference. And so where this comes down to is I need to make sure that what I'm asking for isn't too big of a deal to the dog. So essentially, if my dog is hurt and I'm asking them to do weave pulls, now me using the sausage McMuffin is not fair. If my dog is afraid of something, like maybe walking on slick floors, and I use a reinforcer that they would live and die by, that is not fair. So consider whether the behavior is hard or if the behavior is painful, scary, essentially unsafe. There's a big difference between it's difficult and, it's, and it feels unsafe to me. So for instance, you might ask me to write you an essay on, on this stuff and I would have a price tag for that for you. It would take time out of my schedule, so I'd need to allot for the hours. I only have so much time at the computer a day physically that I can give you, and so I need to make sure that this paycheck is worth the amount of words that you'd like me to write. So let's say that I'm going to charge you $2,000 for this essay. That would be fine, and that would be fair. I have a choice in the matter, and I've decided what my price tag is. There's a big difference between that and saying that you're going to offer me $2,000 to walk across a bridge that I don't think is safe. And it's even worse if that $2,000 is the difference between me paying my mortgage this month or not. So when we think about our dogs, we do need to think about which scenario we're putting them in. Is this a high stakes behavior and a high stakes reinforcer? Because in that case, it's coercion and it's a no-go. The essay writing is not high stakes. It's hard. It's work. But it doesn't feel unsafe to me. Walking across the bridge is high stakes. 
the bridge could break, I could fall, I could be injured. Not to mention just the fact that being afraid is a big ask. Asking anybody to endure fear for a paycheck is not okay. So when you ask your dog to endure fear or pain for their paycheck, I'm going to say that's where we're running into a problem, no matter how big the paycheck is. Versus asking the dog to recall away from something they'd really like to chase, like horses, like deer, like rabbits, and then paying the dog with a reinforcer that they find extremely important. Now we're just manipulating behavior in our favor to keep our dogs in our lives. And these are big different things. So when you're considering the value of reinforcement, think about whether or not the behavior is safe for this dog. And it's not about whether it's safe to you. It's about whether it's safe for them. And safety involves feelings. So if they're going to feel unsafe or feel afraid, it doesn't matter if it is in fact unsafe. Or ask if it's just difficult. If it's difficult, you better pay up with some pretty big reinforcers. The effort to reward ratio must match. But if the behavior is scary or unsafe or painful, you need to ask whether it's okay for you to ask at all. And those are scenarios that I would put into a no choice contingency instead. So lots to think about here. And a few Patreon questions for you. This one comes from Emily. Emily writes, I have two dogs, a two and a half year old Husky Mix Rescue and an eight month old Yakushin Laika. My question is regarding choice and discomfort, particularly the two and a half year old can be a bit nervous about car crates, which is my preferred method of transportation, especially after we get, got into a car crash and the crate saved her life. When it comes to car crates, my older girl can be very hesitant. Not unexpected after the trauma she experienced with the crash, and we worked on building up her confidence again afterwards. I would love for her to be comfortable enough to jump in on her own into the car crate, but I'm not sure if this is a realistic expectation anymore. If a car ride is simply not optional, I've been lifting her up, making sure to be clear with it that I'm not offering a choice and not using food to lure her in. I continue to do crate training in the home with her, and I frequently do give her the option to opt out of the car crate on days where we can pick between home activities and out of home activities. But I very rarely see her make the choice to crate up on her own. She often chooses to sleep in the crates I leave out inside our home. Walks and free dog time in the neighborhood are a non-option due to there being too many dogs around that my Husky Mix will react to, so car rides are pretty much always a non-option if we want to leave the house. I guess my question is, how do I balance giving her the cho a choice in this situation? I don't want to sacrifice her physical safety by offering a car tether option, and she became frantic with a crash-tested harness. It was very movement-restricting. But I also don't want her to miss out on dog time in places where it's mentally safe for her to do dog time. Do I put a pause on car time until she can make the choice to create up more often or do I continue to make it a non-option? I'm at a loss. First of all, Emily, I'm so happy that your car crash turned out with nobody getting hurt. I'm, I'm assuming nobody got hurt. At least the dog didn't. And I'm sorry that that happened. I am really happy that your dog was in a crate and that it saved her life. So I'm like you a all dogs are created in the car person. It's a non-option for me. 
I don't love the harnesses. It sounds like it was such a great thing for you to try, but your dog kind of said a big N-O to the harness. And how cool that you actually saw the difference between, okay, this dog is frantic and panicky in this harness versus the dog just won't get in the crate on their own. That is the line for me. I do not override their choice and push them into panic, but I do override their choice when I know that the outcome is what is better for them. The outcome is that the dog gets to have good experiences and exercise off property and you don't damage your relationship by trying to beg the dog to get into the car crate and the dog is safer riding in the car crate. So for me, I, I wouldn't be asking, how can I make this dog choose crating more often? Like that's actually contradictory to the whole point of a choice in the first place. So how do I make them choose what I want them to choose more often isn't the way to kind of provide agency in, your, in their life. So having said that, I'd be asking what, if any, long-term effects are happening with this crate. Is the dog upset and stressed in the crate? Or is she okay once you put her in there? Is she fine once you get where you're going? Or is she, you know, panting and drooling and, you know, her eyes are maybe bloodshot or her pupils are big or like, you know, look for those physiological signs of stress. If she gets in the crate and lies down and goes to sleep once you've put her in there, I don't think this is an issue. If she's highly stressed in the crate, then she probably is having some effects of that trauma of the car crash. And that's where I'd be working with a professional to try to help her to see that as a safe option. But otherwise, if she really is okay, I personally would keep overriding her and keep putting her in the car crate. A lot of people are not going to love that answer. You might not love that, that answer. That is the answer that I personally have. And some people might have a different one. For me, if the dog is not having long-term stress or even short-term stress being in the car crate, they just kind of don't want to get in there, then I would continue to just put them in there and override it. If the dog is seeming to have some long-term effects of the trauma of the crash, simply giving choice and doing crate training in the house is not going to affect that. So you're going to want to work with a professional who understands that problem and sees it as much larger than just kind of an operant issue although operant behaviors are certainly here and are certainly at play. And I'd even be talking to a veterinary behaviorist potentially about meds. So if the dog is really fine, you just don't like the fact that you have to override her and put her in the car crate, I would say you're probably, you're all right. Don't stress too hard about that. If the dog isn't fine, then I'd be working with a professional to kind of make that better. Next one comes from Lindsay who writes, I'm on the hunt for a trainer and I'm struggling. I'm trying to strike a balance between my own learning style, which is in-person and small group settings, because it helps me to see the skill being taught to different people and dogs and how different responses can be approached, and the methodology and style of some of the respected and recommended trainers in my area who seem to have particularly devoted, potentially dogmatic followings. But when I see training content online, it doesn't sit well with me. I understand how to read a resume or website and look at training approaches. I did a thorough vetting of our trainer for our last pup and it was not great. It was a hybrid of online and in-person and it was a misstep both with the format and ultimately the trainer. I'm not stuck on labels and so as long as there's a conversation to be had about tools, their use and respect for my boundaries with my dog, a good trainer is a good trainer. 
Is there a way I should be thinking about this? I've looked in local to me Facebook groups and dog sports groups for recommendations. Do I just pick one and take the good that's offered and throw out what doesn't make sense? I hope this makes sense. I'm incredibly frustrated. It seems like everyone that would be a good fit is hours away and I'm looking for now for a beginner class that I can build on. We have a female six month old Leonberger who is wicked smart, giving me a run for my money and I'd love to see where I could take her with her training and awesome temperament. Lindsay, unfortunately, this is a global problem. I get a lot of emails from people who say there just isn't anybody local to me that can help me, etc. So I do find that if you want to learn in person, you want to go to classes, you do also need to educate yourself and kind of merge those educations. So like you mentioned, do I sign up for a class and just kind of take the good and throw out the bad? Yeah, that might be the situation you're in. I would also encourage you to get permission to go observe classes before you sign up for them to kind of see what it's gonna, what it looks like to you. Respect to that group classes are not the most effective way to teach. They might be the easiest way for you personally to learn, but they are not the most effective way to get change in dogs. And so trainers who are offering them are doing so because people like them and because people sign up for them. And it's a great way to, you know, have bread and butter for your business, but they are likely doing the best they can with a really imperfect format. If anybody says something that's against your boundaries, certainly don't do it. Know what your boundaries are and go in with them solid. Boundaries are about your behavior. They're not about anybody else's. Boundaries are about I will and will not do X, Y, Z for my dog, whether you tell me to or not. Like a boundary isn't your trainer's responsibility. It's your responsibility. So saying, you know, this is a boundary for me is stating what your behavior will be going forward, not necessarily asking them to change theirs. I do think if you kind of shop around, go look at some classes, observe classes, most trainers will let you come and sit in and observe. They want you to like pay a drop-in fee. It's usually 20, 30 bucks. I would do that. And then, yeah, take responsibility for your own education. Understand you will not agree with everything that happens in the class. Know what you will do instead. And Godspeed. Next one comes from Connor. I'm gonna read the question and then I'll explain the piece that you might not understand. So Connor writes, what are your favorite tactile cues for mind your beeswax for short dogs? Do you have one that worked well with Raya? So mind your beeswax is a protocol that I have that essentially teaches the dog to direct their attention back to their handler on a tactile cue. And a tactile cue is just as it sounds, it's a cue the dog feels rather than a cue that the dog hears or sees. Typically, I have the handler touch the dog on their rib cage or their flank, and that is the tactile cue. Sometimes touching the collar can be a tactile cue. For small dogs, I still have done a leashed collar slide, which is another technique that I have in some of my courses, which is where I just slide my hand down the leash to the collar or towards the collar. That has worked well. And I have also taught some small dogs that pressure upwards on the leash is the mind beeswax signal. Next one is from Kate. Kate writes, on a walk the other evening with my three-year-old dog reactive cattle dog on a long line, we encountered an off-leash dog on a narrow portion of the trail. As the other owner yelled and yelled to recall their dog with no response, I shortened the line and pulled a U-turn to get out of there and go back up the trail. 
The other dog was following us, and while I tried to distract with treats, my dog turned and bark lunged at the dog, all while the other owner was yelling for their dog but not coming forward to try to get their dog. The more we moved away, the more the other dog followed, with my dog now completely over the top until finally other dog was called off. I worked so hard to try to keep my dog under threshold, so I was really upset and mad about this happening. What should I do if this happens again? Because I'm sure it will. And how could I have handled this differently? So Kate, yeah, that is just such an unfortunate part of having a dog that is barky lungy out in the world, is that other people's dogs will be also out in the world and other people will not be able to recall their dogs. These are not things that are changing. And so what that means is that our response is the thing that we can change and the thing we can take charge of. So first of all, I would not turn your dog away from a dog that is coming if you cannot stop the dog from approaching. That will degrade the dog's trust in that signal, in that U-turn signal. You know, if you, if I'm looking at something I'm afraid of and you ask me to turn away from it and come with you and I trust you and I come with you, but then that thing comes up on my back, I'm not going to trust you the next time. And I am definitely going to react bigger the next time, right? And I'm not saying this to berate you, like you used the skills that you had. I'm using it to explain to everybody why I would not use a U-turn in this situation. If another dog approaching my dogs is inevitable, then which it was in this case. That dog was going to approach you. That person had no control and the dog was coming right over. Then I take it upon myself to control that situation rather than try to whisk my dog away fast enough because it will, will usually fail if I do so. Here's all of your options. You could pick your dog up. I don't love that option and I don't know how big your dog is. You know, it could be like a tiny female cattle dog that that's easy, but it could be like a chunky big male cattle dog and then that's not so easy. So, you know, they range in size quite a bit. If the dog is small enough and that's a thing that you have taught the dog to be safe with, then that's something you can do. You can throw food at the incoming dog so that they stop and eat food and then you can get away while they're distracted. You can use spray shield or just a bottle of spray water to keep the other dog away from your dog. You can open an umbrella towards the other dog to create kind of a shield and sometimes it will scare the other dog away. You do need to teach your dog that an umbrella opening away from them is not something to be afraid of. You can also take a deep breath and relax your shoulders and put your hand on your spray shield and allow the dogs to greet each other. That very much depends on what you think your dog is going to do. But if you do think your dog is going to do damage to somebody else's dog, they should be in a muzzle when they're out in the, in the universe because, like I said at the top, other people's dogs will be your problem. They absolutely will be out in public. It is something that we all have to accept. I have actually helped so many dogs get so much better by putting them in a muzzle so that the person could relax about these encounters. And having the person take a deep breath, put their hand on their spray shield, speak sweetly to the dog, and allow the greeting to occur. We create a lot of these problems because we're always trying to just get the dog away, get the dog away, never let the dog say hi, never let the dog interact. And I'm not saying your dog wants to say hi. She probably doesn't. <laughs> That's probably true. But other dogs do approach. And so relaxing using spray shield if an altercation does break out or preemptively if your dog is dangerous use it preemptively to keep that other dog away are things that i would do but i would not try to get my dog away from a dog that is coming and i would not try to distract my dog from a dog that is coming if that dog is going to come and make contact with my dog 
I need to give my dog the respect to allow them to have that interaction as normally as possible. Lots to think about for you. I don't know your specific case, so I don't specifically know which one of these options is best for you, but you probably do. Best of luck. And yes, it will happen again and you will be okay. And the next one from Cassandra. Cassandra writes, a dog walking client picks up her 40 pound dog if an off-leash dog approaches her on leash. The client's dog has never gotten into a fight, but shows signs of arousal towards other dogs when on leash. I've been tasked with getting her more comfortable around other dogs while on leash, but I worry her mom's anxious response will undo any positive associations I make. Is her mom doing the right thing to protect her from potentially dangerous situations, or is this damaging the dog's confidence? So, Cassandra, I don't know, because I don't know this situation, if that is causing more problems or not. But I can guess that... It is not helping the situation for the dog to have all of their agency in the situation removed by being picked up. I also don't know what arousal towards other dogs looks like. That could look like aggression. It could look like barking and lunging. It could just look like whining and excitement. I don't know what that looks like. So I would be focusing on allowing the dog to have those interactions if the off-leash dog approaches, just like I said to the last question. But I would use protective agents, the dog should wear a muzzle if you don't know if the dog is going to bite another dog. You should be using, you should have a spray shield on you so that you can break up an altercation if necessary. Most of the time you'd be surprised. Most of the time they'll have a brief interaction and everyone will move on even if that interaction's not perfect. Recently on the trail, I had my three dogs with me. It was heavily wooded on either side of the road we were walking on so it was not going to be easy for me to get off of the trail and a man was approaching with his off-leash Labrador female and you know I tried to indicate to him I tried to kind of ask him if we were all okay here like if I needed to leash my dogs or whatever he did not respond to me and just kept walking towards us and did not leash his dog so if they're not leashing their dog generally speaking I'm not leashing mine and so I indicated to my and I'm looking at the dog's body language which I talk about a lot I'm looking at her body language she seems fine to me she does not seem to be a problem and so I told my dogs that they were okay to approach the interaction was not what I would call you know fine and low-key and healthy the lab was a little bit alarmed by having dogs approach her but she was okay like she was not freaking out she was not running away she kind of hackled up was a little bit stiff it's tough to be outnumbered and Felix and Rhea did approach her at the same time Felix has a fetish for severely overweight Labradors which she was and so he wanted to mount her and I was reminding him verbally that he was not allowed to do that and so he didn't do it but it was stressing her out because she could tell what his intent was and you know then Rhea's like flitting about her feet very excited to meet a friend and so this was a lot and everybody was a lot and everybody had a lot of energy. Like I would say there was high levels of arousal going on here. And also we did not stand around chatting. The dogs all interacted and then I went my way and he went his way and our dogs went their separate ways and everything was fine. And this is what happens most of the time with dogs that maybe have high arousal or like a little bit anxious. If everybody is allowed to just kind of be natural and be cool. <laughs> if your dog is on leash and the other dog is off leash, that is harder to do, but you can try to keep the leash loose and kind of let them do their dance and then move on from the other dog. Over in the membership, you would have access to my Barky Lungy program and there's a lot of stuff in there kind of about this and handling these, these circumstances. 
Thanks for your question, Cassandra. Good luck with that dog. I think you're going to do all right. Next one comes from Emily. Emily writes, when does it become unethical to train for sport or to push a dog to trial? I'm specifically thinking of Arlo here. We recently went to an AKC obedience fun match and he did really amazing things in the ring, but struggled with even a walk by from the judges during the exam portion. And just a little background that I have that you all don't have is that Arlo is Emily's French bulldog who's had some stranger danger and some handler directed aggression and just some stuff. He's, he's not an easy dog. Back to Emily. He was trained to accept touching to pass his CGC, but there is a level of autonomy allowed by the CGC that is not allowed in obedience. I'm grieving a bit because I think I'm not going to trial him in AKC obedience, even if his exams do get better. His whole AKC career is not worth a few obedience titles for me, as I can't guarantee he won't ever bite a judge. So I'll stick to fun matches and trial in rally until he's an old man and I'm not risking his fast cat agility rally entries. Or, you know, he'll have a slip disc by then because Frenchie and won't let anyone touch him ever again. Anyways, putting aside from the risk of getting banned from AKC, can you help me think through the ethics of working a fearful and aggressive dog through Stanford exams? Okay, so Emily, you asked two questions. The first question you asked was, when does it become unethical to train for a sport or to push a dog to trial? But the second one was a lot more specific, which is the ethics of working a fearful or aggressive dog through Stanford exams. I'm going to answer that one first. If you cannot promise me the dog's not going to bite the judge, you have no business entering that trial. That is for the protection of the judge. That's for the protection of the sport in general. And it's also for the protection of your dog. So there are more stakeholders there than just you. The judge has a right to trust that this dog is not going to bite them. And I feel really strongly about that. So that's my answer for that question. The broader question of when is it unethical to train for a sport or to push a dog to trial is that I want to know that the dog sport actually contributes to my dog's good welfare rather than detracts from it. And I might need to do a whole flow chart to make those decisions. But if showing the dog in a specific sport detracts from the dog's welfare, causes the dog stress that lasts longer than, you know, a few minutes maybe inside the ring, or for some people maybe stress in general, then um, it's not contributing to their welfare. I think training for these sports usually when it's done with kind of dog friendly methods contributes to welfare but trialing in the sport may not and so for instance if i had a border collie that was like noise phobic and didn't want to run agility inside i would trial agility outside and i would kind of kiss a lot of goals goodbye i have had you know felix for instance is a dog that i would not fly on an airplane he's too sound sensitive it would be too scary for him for me to think that's okay and so for that reason a lot of agility events that I'd like to do are just kind of out of the question for us I'm not going to drive from Washington to Florida to compete in the U.S. Open for instance and obviously we can't swim to Europe so competing in Europe is out of the question as well I think these are really important questions that we constantly need to be asking. Is this sport good for this dog or is it just good for my ego is a big, hard question to ask that needs to be asked. It sounds like Arlo really enjoys fast cat and agility and rally and training and other stuff. If he were mine and I didn't think I could guarantee that he wouldn't bite a judge, I would probably just lean into those things. Having said that, a lot of dogs that are afraid of people learn to do a Stanford exam no problem. I think it's a worthwhile training venture, even if you never trial, as long as you're making sure that you are not putting that stress on him. And like, if he is struggling with a walk-by, then the walk-by is too hard and you need to split further. 
I think that you will land in the right place with your decision making here. And I thank you for asking this important question that I hope some other people are considering too after hearing it. And the last one is another from Connor. Connor writes, can you say more about the word effective and your use of slash feelings around slash definition of it? Not specific to, but prompted by the conversation around the big air quotes training plan (laughs) of a dog being dragged across slick floors in the false dichotomy part two. Connor quotes me here. In my opinion, it wasn't effective because you didn't consider the welfare first. I don't disagree, but I always appreciate the ways you succinctly lay things out. Okay, thanks, Connor. So if y'all have not listened to the False Dichotomy series, honestly, turn this one off. Go over there. (laughs) Go listen to those. I think the False Dichotomy series that I did with my friend Lisa Mullinax is some of the most important podcasting I've done in my life. So please go check that out. Considering welfare first in any training program is really, really important. What I meant by, in my opinion, wasn't effective, is that effective means... The problem behavior is no longer a problem for us. That might mean that the problem behavior exists, but only under certain circumstances and I'm able to manage around it. Or that might mean that the problem behavior isn't showing up anymore at all. And also that I have not sacrificed welfare to get there. If I have sacrificed the welfare of the dog to get to my desired outcome, I would not consider that an effective plan because the effect, the outcome that I'm always interested in is that this is no longer a problem for us and also nobody's welfare has been sacrificed. Those two things together spell effectiveness to me. And so therefore, if one of those two things is not here, so like the problem behavior is still a huge problem, but the dog's doing just fine and the dog's welfare is fine, but the person's welfare is now suffering, I have a problem with it. Or if the problem behavior is gone, for instance, the dog that was dragged across slick floors until it would walk across slick floors, which is what I'm citing in that, that episode, if the problem behavior is gone, but the dog's welfare has suffered, the dog's stress levels have increased, the dog's interaction with this person have decreased, the human-animal bond has been damaged, then in my opinion, effectiveness did not take place. So if I suppress behavior down to the point that the dog doesn't do much of anything at all anymore, but they also don't do that thing that we were trying to get them not to do, that was not effective to me because effectiveness is the problem is gone, but all of the natural normal behaviors are still present. Hopefully that clears that up. Thanks so much for your question. Thanks everybody for your questions and thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. I hope you'll rate, review, and subscribe wherever you heard this podcast. And don't forget to join Patreon at patreon.com slash cogdogradio. And if you're interested in more content like the stuff you heard here, I hope you'll check out my online courses, my membership, and all of my offerings at my website, sarahstremming.com. See you there.